we ask kids all the time an interesting question. We often will meet kids, whether we know them or not, and we'll say, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's always a fun question. You get lots of great answers. The other day, Grayson told us he wanted to be a monster truck driver. <laughs> wonder where he got that idea from, but that's his dream. He wants to drive monster trucks when he's a kid. It's a, a very American question. Um, what do you want to do when you grow up? We're, we're told you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do if you just put your mind to it, if you work hard. And it's a question that most people in the world don't get the luxury of getting to ask. It's a very Western question. I'm grateful for the question. I'm grateful for the options. It's, we're blessed and privileged in many ways to be able to, to ask those questions. Um, but I also think it's a lie. It, you know, I, I was told as a kid, whatever you want to be and do, if you just work hard at it, you can do it. When I was a kid... I wanted to be a football player. <laughs> Listen, no matter how hard I worked, there was no way I was going to be a linebacker in football. I love playing basketball. I'm awful at basketball. I have good hand-eye coordination with instruments, not with a ball. I, um, my, my kids love playing football now, so we'll play catch. And last week, uh, Shari videoed me and Hayden. I mean, he was like as far as the back wall, and I threw this pass, and he caught it, and it was wonderful, and, and I sent it to um, a friend of mine, Polo, who's a head football coach, and he's like, Drew, your form is, <laughs> like, I got to teach you how to, like, drop back, and, and it, in my mind, it looked beautiful, and I watched the video after he said that. I was like, I look awful in this video. I'm not even going to show you what I look like, but it, it is a lie. Um, it doesn't matter how I love uh, engineers. I don't have the mind of an engineer. I just don't. It doesn't matter how much I applied myself to that. Um, I'm not going to be that. So kind of the point I want to drive home is, is each and every one of us have a calling that God has given us from the outside. I think it's inherent in us from the very beginning, and much of our work is discovering it. A lot of times, we approach it differently as if, what do I want to do? And we try to think up. And often the expectations of other people filter in there. What do my parents want me to do? What does society expect me to do? And sometimes that's not exactly what God has wired us to do. I think it would be better for us to look at little kids and like get on their level and say, who are you? That might be a better question we ask kids. Who are you already? Like, What's the constructive, life-giving force that the maker of the mountains has already put inside of you that we just need to like get out of there? We typically ask, what do you want to do? We might need to ask, who are you? And that's the question I want to ask you today. I want to invite you to ask yourself this question. It's going to take a lot of time if you've never, ever asked that question of yourself. You can also, that question might change in different seasons of your life. So no matter how, you know, you may be retired, and you might need to re-ask that question of yourself. Who are you already? What's God asked you to do already? Mark Twain is f famous for this quote, find a job you enjoy doing and you will never have to work a day in your life. As if it were that simple, right? But the sentiment is true. Um, one of the clues to discovering how God has wired you is, um, it's not the only clue, but is to figure out what do you really enjoy doing? 
that you're good at, that other people recognize that you're good at. And if you could find a way to make a living on that, you're more than halfway down there. So today's message, I often don't tell you the title. I have a title of my sermons every week. I rarely tell you the title, but the title today is helpful because I think it'll give us a grid, is Discover Your Calling. And we're going to break down those three words. Discover, that's an important word. It's yours. It's not anyone else's. And it's a calling. It's not a choosing. If you're new, we're in, I think, week six of a, um, a series on work and rest. This is the last and fifth week of looking at what the Bible has to say about our work. And to, uh, next week, we'll start in, on the section of rest and what it looks like to rest, what Sabbath looks like. So today, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. I think it's page 656, if you have one of the Bibles around you. And we're going to um, look at something here in Jeremiah and then use it as a jumping off point to um, learn some practical lessons for how we can discover God's calling on us. Jeremiah 29, if you've spent any time in church, what what verse do you know is coming your way in a moment? Jeremiah 29, do you know it? Can you say it? That sounds awful. Come on, like you mean it, like you know it. Your Sunday school teacher would be so depressed right now. For I know the plan, (laughs) Okay, that's a mistake. <laughs> you know it, right? And we kind of, that's our attitude towards this verse. Yeah, yeah, that verse 2911. It's made its way on a lot of coffee mugs and on a lot of bumper stickers. What I want to do is look at the, the context of this great, it's a great verse. It's not a bad verse, it's a good verse. But there is actually this incredible message that God gives his people via Jeremiah that's surrounding, most of it's coming before Jeremiah 29, 11, and I think it will change your life. A little bit of context, because I know you read Jeremiah all the time, okay? So if you don't know Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. He had, we think, two converts. He was extremely successful. And in this uh, history, this is about 600-ish BC, around that time frame, Israel, God's people, had cheated on God. They broke his covenant uh, commandments with them. In fact, the language Jeremiah will use is adultery. He, he is um, confronting Israel and saying, you've had an affair on God. On the God, this God that delivered you from Pharaoh, from Egypt, you've cheated on him. This is like the language of how serious it is. Now, as a way of being just, God has to bring some sort of judgment on his people. But there's also hope. His point is not to just punish them, but to show them how egregious it is that they've left him but also with the invitation to come back. So as a way of doing this, God allows Babylon, the enemy of the north, to come in and to overtake um, his people. They exile, another word, which is a very strong word, might make some of you uncomfortable. Another word for exile is that they deported. So Babylon came in because God allowed it and they deported God's people into another country. And God's people are having a hard time because another country is saying, you shouldn't be here, and they're shipping them out. And the biblical word for that is exile. But you could replace that word with deportation today. All right? 
And it's done by um, Babylon. Babylon is the poster child for what it looks like to live outside of God's way, to live apart from God. Babylon is the epitome of anti-God. They glorified wealth and war. And so here's the crazy thing about this that, that a lot of people, especially modern, postmodern Americans struggle with, is that God doesn't endorse the ways of Babylon, but he'll use them to send his people a message. And I, even at the end of it, Jeremiah has some strong words for Babylon. So imagine you're God's people, and then there's this government that really, really loves wealth and war and are saying, we're going to come and oppress you. I know you have to use your imagination. <laughs> Not really. You don't have to look very far to find any government that lifts up war and wealth above treating people with humanity. Babylon comes in, and they exile God's people. Now, here's what you got to know, because you'll see it in, in, this, in this chapter, is some people among God's people say, don't unpack your bags. This isn't going to last very long. Like God's going to turn this thing. We're going to get to go back real quick. Okay. Jeremiah 29, this chapter that's made its way on coffee cups, is Jeremiah coming to God's people and saying, no, 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 no. Unpack your bags. It's going to be 70 years. Don't listen to these people. They're lying to you. 70 years you will be deported. You will be in exile for 70 years. So you better be about what God's called you to be about. And the crazy thing is, historically, this is actually what happened. They were exiled for 70 years. So that's the context of this coffee cup verse that you, with gusto, were quoting to me, right? All right, so let's go to Jeremiah 29. Let's, um, let's see. Uh, let's start in verse 1, just so you can kind of get this. And really, the meat is in verses 5, but... Um, this is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priest. So watch all the people that are not exempt from being deported. The surviving elders, the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and the metal, war, metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So if you catch that, like you got the king and queen and the blue-collar workers, all of them, elders, priests, prophets, king, queen, craftsmen, metal workers, eunuchs, all of you out of the country. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has done. It's a bad day. Verse 3, the letter was sent by hand of Elasa, the son of Shaph, I'm not, I can't pronounce those words. We're going to just jump to verse 4 because we can do that. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so here's the message. Remember, there are people who are like, don't unpack your, bag, your bags. This isn't going to last long. Jeremiah says, verse 5, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Which is fascinating. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's the verse we all know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. There's a couple of things I want to highlight in here. And I think we can, while these are written to the people in exile, it's safe to take these same principles and go, we can apply them to our lives as well. I want you to look at verse 5. And here's, um, there's some very uh, interesting action words that God gives his people. He says, build, live, plant, and eat. Build and plant, be constructive. Build a place and live in it. Plant a garden and live off of it. Now, um, in, in some of these other verses, if you remember the call and the command to God's people in Genesis that we looked at a few um, weeks ago, this is all language that shows up in here. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So he's basically, the people among them are saying, God's not, he's, he's, it's not going to take a long time. Don't unpack your bags. What Jeremiah says is, Find shelter, find food, fall in love, make love, multiply, get comfortable, increase your family. It's all Genesis language. What God is saying to these people is, I, the calling I gave you in Genesis to steward the earth, to um, provide sustenance, to expand your family, hasn't gone away. Yes, Babylon has come in. You don't understand why Babylon has come in and deported you. But even in this place of exile, I'm calling you to make that place a garden, to build, to live, to plant, to eat, to take wives, to multiply. But then, uh, and now, now this is where I want to draw a line, because most of us approach our jobs as if that's, that's, that's it. I'm going to go to work, I'm going to make money to buy a house or to pay rent, and then put food on the table and take care of my family. And that's the American dream. Work hard have a house, eat well, take care of your family. The kingdom dream doesn't stop there. It goes further. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of other people. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. 
into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf, and in its welfare, you will have your welfare. So um, he, he's saying it's not just enough. God's plan is not just enough that you, you do constructive and active things to take care of your family, but also that you would use your energies and your mind and your creativity and your effort and your work to bless other people, the same people who deported you. Like, well, where else in religion do you find that message? Love your enemies. Seek the welfare of the people who have pulled you out. It's incredible. The word welfare there, we have an interesting relationship with the word welfare because that's a label for a government program these days. But the Hebrew word for welfare, anyone know what the Hebrew word for welfare is? It's a great word. It's shalom. It's the peace of God. It's the word. So he's saying, don't just work for your house, for your food, for your family, but, but actively engage for the shalom, or we might say the peace and the plenty of other people. And, and if you're Israel, Babylon's your enemy. They're like anti-God. They worship wealth and war. And God is here saying, seek the welfare, the shalom, the peace and plenty of that city where I sent you. And not just that. See, that's where, um, where humanism stop, stops. It, you know, being a good human is, is up to this point, but being a good Christian goes further and pray for them, he says. So don't just do um, natural constructive work for yourself and for others, but also on top of that, do supernatural work for them. Pray for them. Fascinating. I'm glad you love it. <laughs> Let's keep going. Uh, verse um, Eight and nine, right? At the very end of it, he's warning Israel, don't listen to these people who are lying to you. And I think it's fascinating at the very end, I highlighted here for you. He says, I did not send them. And what I, what I it, it's, it's jumping off of this, but it's true, is there is, these people are doing work that God did not send them to do. And it's actually destructive to the welfare of the city and the welfare of the people. And the question might be, are you in the same boat? Are you doing work God's not sent you to do? But there's so many opportunities. And if you're even half smart or half capable or half creative, lots of people will ask you to do things for them. And a lot of times we, ha we struggle with saying this complete sentence, no. <laughs> we, I struggle with saying no to people. Because I don't want to disappoint people. I get asked to do a lot of things, and my default answer is yes, and then I'm like overcommitted. But this is an incredible thing. Is, is there's, there's things God sends you to do, and there's things God doesn't send you to do. And if we're not careful, we can say yes to things that God never asks us to say yes to. Verse 11, here we go. The coffee cup verse. And I wonder if he's saying it because these people are so discouraged that they don't understand why God would allow Babylon to come in. They don't understand why it's going to be 70 years. They don't understand God's purpose. We ask this question today of God when bad things happen in the world or in our life. We're like, God, I just don't understand how you would allow this. In verse 11 is God saying, I know. I know I have the plans. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare plans for shalom, for peace and plenty, not for evil. The enemy would have you believe that God has plans for evil for you or that God has no plan and so you just have evil. But 2911 is on, your, is on 
bumper stickers because we have to be reminded God knows it's his plan and it's for shalom. It's for future and a hope. What I, what I want to highlight here is, is uh, something that doesn't get riffed on a lot in this verse is, is future and hope. This is one of uh, our needs is having a future and having hope. Um, one of the best books I've read recently, years ago, that changed my life is a book called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg. Uh, John Ortberg was discipled by one of my heroes, Dallas Willard. And so the book was basically everything Willard taught Ortberg um, about the soul. It's an incredible book. A lot of people don't talk about caring for their soul. It's a great book. So each chapter is the soul needs, fill in the blank. One of the chapters is on the soul needs a future. And our need for future and for hope. So you, all, all the time, uh, you see this example of, of a girl who breaks up with a guy. And you say, why'd you break up? He was rich. He had a nice car. He took you to restaurants you, you would never go to. You, he, he took you to places that you could never afford. And often the answer is, I wasn't going to marry him. I, saw no, I didn't see myself with this person. Now, if you had you know, boyfriends or girlfriends, how, how many of your breakups were the result of you coming to the conclusion there's no future with this person? Regardless of how fun they might be or how rich they may be or whatever, you, when you don't see yourself with somebody or even an institution or a job or a church or whatever, and you're like, I don't see a future, we, we, we eject ourselves from those situations because inherently we need a future. And when we don't have a future, and especially a hopeful future, it's bad, bad news. Um, I just read a book by Viktor Frankl. Does anyone know who Viktor Frankl is? Incredible, incredible man. Uh, uh, Catherine, a few weeks ago, recommended this book to me. It's called A Man's Search for Meaning. And I read it in about a week. And um, I was in the airport two weeks ago starting it. I've read a lot of books in public. I've never had anyone comment to me about the book I was reading. And this woman was sitting across the aisle for me, from me and just kept staring at me, and I was like, what is she? And I'm just reading. She kept making eye contact with me, and I knew she wanted to say something to me, but she wouldn't because it's at the airport and it's awkward. And um, her flight was, was taken off or something, so she got up and left, and as she walked out, she just looked at me, and I made eye contact. She goes, the best book, and then kept going. And she saw that I was reading this book, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl um, survived um, the, the Nazi camps and spent three years in his, I think, late 30s, and he ended up dying in his 90s. And so um, this book is about, he was a psychologist, what he observed in the Nazi uh, concentration camps. And basically, it's an incredible, it's a, it was a depressing read for sure, because he tell the first half of it is his um, explanation of what it was like um, being separated from your family and your wife and living for three years and surviving and wondering every day if you were going to die and all this. It's really tough read. The last half is the psychological principles he learned. And it's basically this. I mean, you should read the book, but this is basically the point of the book. He noticed that when a prisoner gave up hope for the future, within days they died. But if you could hold on to someone or something, you could make it through the gas chambers or the threat of the gas chambers. It was, um, he tells a story of a man in there who had a dream 
that on March 15th, they were going to be set free. The war was going to be over. And this was like in February. And he was the most upbeat, happy prisoner. March 15th came. By March 30th, he was dead. And the reality is as his dream came true. The day he died was March 15th. It was the day that he no longer had any more hope. And um, uh, Victor tells the story of he, he had a, a manuscript that was taken from him when he showed up to the camp. They ripped it out of him. And he was dying of a disease, and he would wake up in the middle of the night and write on scraps of paper this thesis. And he would imagine, while his feet are frozen, while they're out in the winter, he would imagine standing in a warm and beautiful theater giving his thesis of what he learned in that concentration. And that, he, Victor Frankl says, is the thing that, that pulled him through. We've got a, a great quote. That's him. Um, go to the next slide. It's a great quote. This is what he learned in the Nazi camps. Ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. And that's one of the ways he summarized what he saw in the camps, is when you lost, when you lost having a meaning to live, it didn't matter if you had the means to live, if you had the money for it. Uh, fascinating, this isn't, uh, I just want to share this with you. This is a, a great quote. It has nothing to do with work and rest. Um, but some people, um, they don't know what to do with, um, with Auschwitz and everything. And I think my favorite line from the book, he says, our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, Man is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema on his lips. So great. Nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I should share that with you. All right. Welfare. Shift gears a little bit more. This is what I love about the, the Bible's view of work is that it's not selfish. It's for the benefit of other people. He says, but you should seek the welfare of other people. I used this quote a couple weeks ago by Tim Keller. I think it's worth repeating again. He says, when we work, we are, as those in the Lutheran tradition often put, put it, the fingers of God, the agents of his provisional love for others. This understanding elevates the purpose of work from making a living to loving our neighbor. And at the same time, it releases us from the crushing burden of working primarily to prove ourselves. I think I, most of the, the, the pastoral trauma I see in people, and even in this church alone, is that there is a crushing weight when we believe our job is for ourselves. And if you can be set free and realize that your job is not just to provide food on your table, but it's also to help your neighbor, that you can fulfill the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself with your job. It sets you free from all kinds of bondage. And that's part of my prayer for doing this series is that you would, if, if you're enslaved by, I have to go to work to make money to achieve my American dream, if you can be set free of that lie and find out that God has something way bigger for you, it will radically change your life and it will change the people around you. 
the last part of this that I want to highlight, verses 12 and 13, is God invites us to call upon him and to seek him with our whole heart, and we'll find him. And that's why I'm calling this Discover. You seen the movie You, Me, and Dupree? I wish I had the clip. There's this clip in, in You, Me, and Dupree where Dupree is like, I don't know, this like 40-year-old um, who has no aim in life, and everyone's like, get your act together, Dupree. And he ends up going to this classroom, which is like the take your dad to school day, and everyone's like, I'm a fireman, I'm a lawyer, or whatever. And then Dupree has nothing. He gets up, and he has this hilarious speech, which is so terrible. And it's about like, he's waiting. He's just sitting there waiting, and one day, he's, it's going to come down and zap him, and he's going to know what to do with his life. And that there's some... Some of you are sitting in your pods and you know which one you are. And it's fascinating. I wish I had the clip because it, it provided really much need to laugh right now. Um, but it's great. And that's the, way, oh, that's the way a lot of us approach our calling. We're just sitting waiting for God to come down and zap us and to give us clear directions. And while your calling does come from God, the reality is you have to search it out. You've got to discover it. We might use the word excavate. You've got to ask questions. This is why I said we need to ask kids, who, who are you already? Not what do you want to do? So um, the first thing, discover. I should hold that word in your mind for a bit, discover. Now, I know some of you are, are maybe you're in the middle of your life or you're, you're deep in your career and I don't want you to write this off because throughout your life, there will be seasons of your life that change. And the way God uses you will change from, from season to season, from year to year. And sometimes, if you're not paying attention, it'll change on you and you won't know it. And so I think we need to always be in this mode of discovering what God's up to in this season of your life. And so in this season of your life right now, how is God asking you to discover his purpose for you? It's going to take some time. It's going to take other people. You're going to have to ask. I'll give you some questions you can ask. But this is discovery, not which is different than thinking up what you want to do. It's different. It's already in you. So I'll tell you a, a very painful story of this. Um, from an early age, I knew inherently that I was called into the ministry. But I didn't know exactly what that looked like. Fast forward to a few years ago. I think it was about two years ago. I was in a room for two days with a bunch of pastors that I highly respect and admire, my heroes. This was in Dallas. And um, uh, like Matt Chandler was there. He was a hero of mine. And some people from um, Austin Stone, which is a church I greatly admire. And, and I mean, there's an incredible room full of people. And I didn't belong. And they're talking. And about like, a day and a half into this thing, basically we had spent two days around this big boardroom table under fluorescent lights talking about church strategies. And about a day in, I'm like, I just got a headache. <laughs> and I'm like, I just need the sunshine. I need to not be around a table talking about church. I just, like my body was revolting on me because I am not made to sit around in an office for days on end talking about dreams of making the church better, you know. 
And I very quickly began to feel a lot of guilt and shame because I'm like, I'm not like these guys. Like they're having conversations of, should we add a seventh service or should we do a $90 million building campaign? And they're like kicking that idea around. And I'm just like, man, I'm just not, I'm not asking those questions, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, and I, I just felt like I didn't belong. And I even got to the point of getting so discouraged, I thought I should quit. I was like, I'm clearly not a pastor. I thought, these guys are great. They have wonderful minds. They have incredible strategies. I'm way out of my league. And I literally thought, like, should I quit? Am I doing you, or am I doing our church a disservice? Because I'm not like these guys. I'm not this church executive. I'm an artist, primarily. I'm an artist, primarily. And I'm, and I'm, not, a, uh, I'm not this business executive. And, and so they, they did this exercise. They're like, okay, you got two hours. Go find a place and come up with your, like, strategy for the next six months and get your matrix out and here's a big sheet of paper and a sharpie and then we're all going to present to one another so i was like no <laughs> i'm gonna go pray because <laughs> that's what i know how to do and so i went and i found this giant window with natural light and i i sat there and i just prayed and then i felt the lord prompt me to like just text like 10 people that i knew and say what do you think God's called me to do? Because I'm literally like, I think I should quit. Like, this is not working out. And all 10 of them said the same thing. I don't think it was collaborated. I don't think they were like texting each other, hey, what should we say? They just all, in very different ways, they all said essentially, um, when you creatively talk about the scriptures and not Jesus, people who are scared of religion or who can't understand the high things feel safe and grow and learn more about the Bible. Like when you do that, God works. They all said it in very different ways, but it was essentially what I'm doing right now is like God's called you to do that, right? So I'm sitting by this window crying like, okay, Lord. And then it was time to come present all of our plans. So I just left. <laughs> just... <laughs> See, I, got, I, li- no, no, I got in my car and came home. Got an I-35 and drove five hours. I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> True story, right? So here's, here's the thing, okay? Now, some of you, you need to discover and ask questions and get to the bottom of what your calling is, okay? Some of you might be like me. My calling was staring me right in the face. And you know what I was doing? I wouldn't make eye contact with it because somewhere a long time ago, someone said, when I shared, hey, I think God's calling me to speak and to write and to communicate, I was told, you're too young, you don't have a college degree, and your church is too small for people to care. Those are the three things people told me. And so I believed those dumb lies. I'm like, all right, that's not what I'm called to do then. I should go be a church executive or whatever. And so I had this calling stare me in the face, and I wouldn't make eye contact with it. And I was so ashamed because I focusing on what I was not good at and comparing myself to other people's callings. And it took asking 10 people, hey, what has God called me to do? And they all basically said, you don't have to look very far. You just need to make eye contact with it. And that might be my question to you. 
Is your calling right here, but you're not making eye contact with it because someone told you something that was stupid that you believed and it's a lie? You've got to discover it, okay? Last thing I'll say, and it's not about me, but the thing about Sundays, it comes every seven days, so I only have a short amount of time to find stories. <laughs> and so um, here's my story. When I was a kid, you know how I answered the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would always answer it two ways. I want to be a firefighter or I want to be an architect. Those are two ways. And this dawned on me this week. Is inherently in that answer, it was there. I often get called to be first on the scene when something bad happens in someone's life. And in some ways, I'm a spiritual firefighter. I get to show up when there's a, when there's a mess. And sometimes I get to save people from the flames of hell. You know, tell people, hell's hot forever as long time. You should know your options, right? So in some ways, literally, I'm a spiritual firefighter. I'm also an architect. I get to use my creativity to design and build things. I get to build a church. I get to build sermons and build a sermon series and build you know, devotional guides. You know, this is me being an architect. I don't build buildings, but I can design and build things that help you grow in your faith. I, um, I get to build people. I get to build disciples. I get to build leaders. And I, I've learned to approach my job in that way. How can I be a spiritual firefighter? How can I be a spiritual architect? And it just so happens that the, the way God gifted me to do that is by speaking and writing. But inherently, my calling is to not work for the church. There's times where I haven't worked for the church and I've done the same thing. I've been able to be a firefighter of sorts. I've been able to be a spiritual architect and not even be paid by the church. Because that's my calling. It's different than a job. So here's some questions. I wanna, you might want to take a picture of this. I should have printed this out. Here's eight questions that, um, look, that you could ask. There's a great book called Garden City by John McComer. And these are in there, which kind of helps you dig. And the first thing is, what do you love to do? That might be a first start. Now, like, it's not the only question because I like playing basketball. It's clearly not my calling because I'm not seven feet. Second question would be, what are you good at? I've kind of always been good at public speaking. A lot of people are afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it. That was one of the clues for me. What are you good at or what are you bad at? Like, if you're bad at something, stop doing it. That's the clue. It's just a negative form. <laughs> the third question would be, uh, what does your world need? We'll talk more about this later. But does it meet a legitimate need? Does it help solve a problem? Fourth thing, does it bring welfare to the world? Um, for, ex for example, there are some things that you don't even have to ask, God, should I do that? There was a, a time when I was freelancing, and I was, because uh, I, I, can do graphic design, and I was building websites because that's, we didn't have a church at the time I was doing that, and so I built websites for money. Architect, right? So um, someone came in my office, and they wanted me to build them a website, and I needed a client. They were, um, they got, and they wouldn't tell me what the business was, and I finally asked what the business was, and um, it was an X-rated website that they wanted me to build. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't do that. And, and they said, well, what's your fee? And I told them my fee, and they said, I'll pay four times that. And I said, I still won't do it. <laughs> it didn't matter. Like, I, need, I would have loved four times my rate. But inherently, I'm like, that, no. I'm not going to build a pornographic website for you because it's not shalom, right? Uh, fifth question, what are the open doors in your life? This is a timing question. Like, what's right in front of you, you know? 
not just maybe 10 years. Maybe there's something God's calling you to do 10 years down the line, but like right now, what's God calling you to do? The next question would be, what's God blessing? That's a great question. Like it's a hint that God's grace is already in it. Seven would be, what are the people you know saying? This is my example. I had to text people and say, hey, what, what do you think? Because I, I think I want to give up. I don't think I'm good at this. And they saved me from giving up. Uh, last question, eight. What's the Spirit stirring in your heart? What's the Spirit stirring? So these might be eight questions that I would encourage you to take your time. Like, don't do this in one coffee. It might take you years. It's okay if it takes you years. It's okay if it takes months or weeks. But these are just to get you going. You got to discover it. Um, now, here's the bad, uh, here's like bad news, okay? Um, once you discover it, you're not done. You know what you have to do once you discover it? You got to develop it. Everyone know Malcolm Gladwell? He wrote the book Outliers. He's got this great theory that I think is true. Some people don't. But I think it's true. It's 10,000 hours theory that it takes you roughly 10,000 hours to master something, to get good at something. Turns out the phrase practice makes perfect is true. And so once you do discover your calling, you got to go to work at developing it. It doesn't just happen, right? It's hard work. All right. Move, move on quickly. Discover your calling. All I'd say about this is it's yours. I allowed other people to tell me what my calling was, and that was their expectations. They looked at me and said, you're too young, you're not educated, and your church is, isn't significant because of its size, which is a lie. We're very significant. Size doesn't equal significance. In the kingdom, the most significant things are the small things, right? Your calling, not what your parents want you to do, not what society wants you to do, not what even um, ideas of what of, of what gender should be allowed to do certain things. None of that. This is your calling. This is the calling God's given you, not what society has put on you, not what culture's put on you, what God's given you. This is your calling. And that it's a calling. Discover your calling. We call it a calling, not a choosing. I did not choose to be a pastor. You, you, there's this thing called the two-day weekend I would love that. <laughs> I rarely get a two-day weekend. I'm not complaining. But, but I, didn't, I did not sign up to have um, 100 people and have their expectations of, 100 different expectations of how I should be a pastor. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't want that. It's a calling. You have a calling. It, it exists outside of you. Um, we often use words that I don't like, job or career, not that, I'm not saying you should do away with those jobs or those, those labels. I want to encourage you to start thinking of another word, and that's vocation. Vocation is very different than a job or even a career. Here's what vocation means. The Latin word vocare means to call. And the Latin word vocatio means voice. So I would define vocation as this. Go to the next your vocation is God's call on your life and your voice to the world. That's your vocation. It's not the same thing as a job. That's not even the same thing as a career. Your vocation is God's call. Literally, by definition, vocation means call. And vocare, a similar word, means your voice. So your vocation is your voice. And it's possible 
I don't think 100% of people will get paid to do their vocation. It's just not the way it works. But I think you could figure out a way to do your vocation even if you weren't paid for it. Again, all this takes time. Uh, lastly, I want to show you a graph. Some of you are visual like me. None of that helps me. I'll show you what helps me. Is There's a, a quote that's by Frederick Buchner, the novelist, that says, Work is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That might be, if you're wondering, where should I work? What type of work should I do? What's God calling me to do? This quote would be, at very least, a very good compass where is your deep gladness? I love to create. I love to create. Where's uh, the world's deep hunger or the deep need? And, and this is an example of where I get to do this. Like, my deep gladness meets people's need for spiritual uh, learning. And it, for me, that's where it matches. For you, it'll be obviously very different. But that's a great, great quote. Here's the, the image that's helped me is... There, there's three Ps. There's God's provision in your life. There's your passion and the world's problems. And you might want to make a list. What has God provided me with? What are my passions? What do I love to do? What's the world's problems? And where all three of those converge, that might be a hint of where your calling and your contribution and your, your God-given calling is, where those three things align. They'll obviously align in very different ways and capacities for all of us in various times and seasons of our life. Right, it's not that neat, it's not that proportional, but this is at least one tool you could use to figure out what's God calling me to do in this season or in my next season, whether it's in my job or outside of my job. What's God provided me with? What's my passion? What's a problem? We're gonna throw some um, application questions on the screen. And um, I'm ho- I hope that some of this is helpful to you. And as I pray, we'll leave these up for a little bit. But um, for some of you, um, I'm wondering if you need to find a buddy and start asking those eight questions. And if you need them, just email us. We'll, we'll send them to you. We'll put them on social media. Um, maybe, maybe some of you are number two, where you, you know what God's called you to do, but you haven't developed it yet. Maybe, there's, um, maybe you need to go back to school. Maybe you need to look up some videos on YouTube. Maybe you need to buy some books or find someone to apprentice under, and you need to develop a skill that God's put in you, and you need to start using it. Maybe um, the third one is um, maybe some of you are pursuing the calling your parents had for you, and you're not pursuing your calling. Um, are you living up to the expectations of others instead of under the expectation of what God has called you to do? Um, are you operating in your calling or are you operating in your choosing? There is definitely a time in this where we have to do what Jesus did and say, Father, your will be done, not my will. Being a church planner, being a pastor was not my will. <laughs> I have to, had to surrender to that. And fifth, just practically What's one thing you can do this week? What's one step forward you can do to bring your deep gladness to the world's deep hunger? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good Father who loves us, who cares deeply for us, who cares deeply for the world, and is big enough to send and to call your people into dark places to build, to plant, 
to build relationships, to multiply families, to seek the welfare of others, to pray for them. God, I pray that you would help us to bloom where you have planted us. But for those who are on the front of that struggle of not knowing how to spend their life, or maybe they just hate their job. But I pray first that you'd help them to bloom where they're planted. Second, I pray you'd help them to discover the place you're calling them to. Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum, I ask that you would help us. Lord, we recognize that our work in this world is not as a result of the curse and the fall in Genesis 3. I pray, God, you would restore the meaning of our co-working with you in this world. Lord, we repent of our agendas, of our trying to live up to other people's expectations. God, we repent of the times where we've been close to your calling and have let other people talk us out of it. God, we repent of believing the dumb lie of the American dream, that that's what's going to bring fulfillment to us. I pray you would give us kingdom eyes for our time on this earth. I pray in this moment that you would raise up a people who spend their God-given energies loving their neighbor as they love themselves. Even as an offering and a worship, as a living sacrifice, as Romans says to you, God. I pray you just set us free from living underneath the economics of it all. In the times and places where we've let money determine how we serve you and how we serve other people. God, set us free from the lies of HGTV that we have to have a certain standard of living to be human and to to find peace and wholeness and blessing and that it has to look like Martha Stewart designed it. Forgive us of the times where we've gone to work just to make ends meet. Lord, I know there there are many of us who are in that moment of needing to make ends meet. And I pray, God, for your provision, for your daily bread, but also, God, that you would set us all free from only working for our own benefit. Help us to do that with within the limitations and the capacities that you've given us in all of our seasons. But as we move forward to a time of looking at rest and Sabbath, I pray you would deliver us from Pharaoh, deliver us from the lie that we are what we produce, and so we should work harder and more. 
all the lessons we've learned, God, in work. I pray you'd help us to learn them deeper. And I pray, God, you'd open up our hearts as we turn the page to Sabbath and to rest and restoration. Awaken our eyes to the wonderful delight that you have for your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.